Welcome to the Faith Broadcast. I'm Carrick Butler, the pastor of Faith Christian Center. Thanks for tuning in today. We believe today's message is going to help you live this lifestyle of faith. It's going to empower you to live a life that makes Jesus famous wherever you go. Open up your heart. We know God has something special just for you. And we believe that as you listen to today's message, something good is going to happen to you. So listen up. I'll talk to you today at the end of our broadcast. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing with our Faith Under Fire series. Now, if you miss any of these series, I encourage you to go back on the Faith Plus app, listen to them. I'm going to do a little bit of review today, but it's important as we keep building and building throughout this series. And so, Faith Under Fire, part five, Ephesians chapter six. We're going to look at verse 10. Faith Under Fire. So, if you haven't downloaded a little Faith Plus app, today is a great day to do so. You'll be able to find all of our messages on there. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand against the wiles of the devil. It means to be able to resist against the wiles. That means the cunning arts, the deceit, the craft, and the trickery of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Remember we said this word wrestle means a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and it's decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. So he says our battle for domination, our battle for victory, our battle that happens every single day is not against people but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, we're supposed to take the whole armor of God and stand or withstand, or we are called to resist. We're not called to yield to the strategies of the enemy. We are called to resist the strategies of the enemy. We're called to resist the cunning arts, the deceit, the craft, and the trickery of the enemy. So notice he said five different times the word against in verse 12. This gives the picture of face-to-face -face combat. The believer has to fight on a daily basis. You see the phrase evil day here. What is the evil day? The day of trouble, the day of test, the day of trial, the day of attack. Let's go to John 10.10. 10. We're going to quickly review. John 10.10. 10. The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I am come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. The word thief here means an embezzler or a pilferer or a pickpocket. This word thief means an embezzler, a pilferer, or a pickpocket. The word steal here means to take away by stealth. This word paints the picture of a pickpocket who's so artful in the way he steals that his exploits of thievery are nearly undetectable. So one of the things you learn about Satan here is he is a pickpocket. And the way the pickpocket steals is through the art of distraction. The way the pickpocket seeks to relieve you of what you have and steal from you is in a way that you don't even know you've been stolen from until it's too late. It's not the person who breaks in the house and tries to rob you. It's the person who may bump into you distract you, get your attention somewhere else so that he can steal from you. So if you're distracted, Satan's stealing from you. If you're offended, 
Satan's stealing from you. If you're off course, Satan's stealing from you. And he prefers to steal from you in a way when you don't even know it's him. He steals from a lot of people all the time who don't even believe he exists. He operates through deceit. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Doing some quick review. In the past two parts of the series, I did some more explanation of this, and so if you missed it, go to the Faith Plus app and review. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. One of the things we learn here about Satan in other places, he's the accuser of the brethren, and the accuser, accuser is one who charges with an offense, crime, or sin. He's also here called a deceiver, which means to get someone to believe something that is not true. In John 8, Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. The father of lies. As we said before, the gates of hell are defined as hell's powers, policies, plots, strategies, strength, wisdom, censors, sentence, Satan's propaganda machine, his efforts of injustice, and the financial tactics of hell. All of these things are cloaked in deception and filled with accusation and lies. The gates of hell are cloaked in deception and filled with accusation and lies. So let's look at a few of the strategies of Satan in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, one of the most important parables of the Bible, it gives Satan's five strategies, how he operates, his battle plan. And so when Jesus shares the parable side of it in the first part of Mark chapter 4, he says, pay attention, look, there went out a sower to sow, and it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on the stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Let's skip down to when Jesus begins to interpret this and translate it. Verse 14, the sower sows the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in the hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. This word receive means to take. Another way it's translated means to catch. As we talked about in part one of the series, and part one and part two, catching the word just like you would catch a basketball. You catch the word and you hold on to it. Satan can't just walk up and take it out of your hands. That's not how he operates. He tries to make you let go of the word and pick up a deception. And so these people who caught the word, they caught it with gladness, with rejoicing. And because they were rejoicing, they had some immediate production. So that means when you hear the word and you receive it, you take it, you catch it, and you began to rejoice, immediately you receive production. But here's what happened to him, verse 17. They didn't have any root in themselves, so they endured, but for a time. Afterward, when affliction, we define as pressure brought by people, is a persecution, and affliction, which is pressure brought by circumstance, arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. That word offended means to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way, upon which another may trip or fall to entice to sin, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey, to cause to fall away. Notice the affliction of persecution was sent by Satan. Why? For the word's sake, to make you let go of the word that you caught, to make you let go of the word you received, to make you let go of the word you have taken. And so he'll send pressure brought by circumstance, pressure brought by people, 
to make you let go of the word that you hold. And when you let go of the word, he tries to give you a deception that you run with. And now you think you have revelation. You think you have truth. You may even think you have the word of God, but you're running with a deception. And you get the results of that deception in your life. Remember how it said in verse 6 in the parable that this seed, was the plant was scorched and withered away. Satan's goal is to make, if you receive the word at any point in your life, if you take and occult the word at any point in your life, he wants the, it to get to a place where it looks like you never received the word in the first place. That's why you have to understand spiritual growth is not linear. It doesn't just happen over time. That's how you've seen people who were once strong in their relationship with God, walking with God, and you see them like a year later, and they don't even look like they ever knew God in the first place. And you ask them, hey, what happened? And, you know, they say, well, I don't believe that anymore. And what happened? Either the affliction, the persecution, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and lust, other things came in, crowded out the word, scorched the word, and now there's no evidence in their life. And this is how Satan seeks to operate, to get people to let go of the word. Satan wants to erase the growth and the production of the word in your life. His attacks are shrouded in stealth and deception, and he presents another option while he questions the word you received. He still operates the way he did in the garden, Genesis 3, when he talked to Eve and said to Eve, did God really say? What is he doing? Casting doubt on the word of God. That's always how Satan operates. He casts doubt on the word of God. And so you have to be careful who you listen to. If you always listen to a person who's always doubting the word of God, or coming up with excuses why the word can't be true, casting doubt on the word in any shape, form, or fashion, notice where it, that thought originated. I'm not saying that person's of the devil or from the devil. I'm just saying they believe something the devil taught. And we'll get into that in a moment. You know, one of the things we see in Matthew chapter 4, let's go there, and then we'll end our review here. Matthew chapter 4. We know this is the temptation of Jesus, starting with verse 5. Then the devil takes him, Jesus, up into a holy city, into the holy city, and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you shall dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, or it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So what did Satan do? He quoted the word. But he was quoting the word out of context. So you have to be careful just because it sounds religious, just because there's a scripture attached doesn't mean it's true. You have to know the word in context. If you take the text out of the context, you're just left with a con. And so Satan tried to con Jesus. Remember, one of the names of Satan is the wicked one, and wicked means twisted. If it's twisted, that means it was true before and it got twisted. So Satan seeks to twist scripture and twist the truth to make people live in a deceived way. And we understood, as we saw in Ephesians 6, how that is the hierarchy of the demonic kingdom. We started identifying last week different types of spirits that Satan employs in his agenda. Unclean spirits. It talks about those a lot in the gospel. An unclean spirit. That word means unclean in thought and life, lewd and foul. So this lets us know that this unclean spirit starts working on the mind before it works on the actions. Evil spirits defined as wicked and bad, even harassing. Spirits of infirmity, spirits of sickness, disease, feebleness, and frailty of the body. We see all three of these spirits in the Gospels. We see lying spirits and seducing spirits. We covered that last week. 
We also saw and defined in at length last week familiar spirits or spirits of divina divination, also called spirits of Python. Now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. We have to understand we are in a war. Everywhere around you is a war zone, is a battleground. And the more you don't understand that there is a fight going on, the easier it's for you to be taken captive or give in and lose the war going around you. You have to understand there is a fight. But because you're on the side of faith, it's a good fight. It is a good fight of faith. There's victory for you. But you must do what Ephesians 6 says. You must put on the whole armor of God and you must resist the wiles, the strategies, the deceit, the trickery, the craft of the enemy. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, hey, we're living in those times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed or paying attention and listening to intently, seeking to learn from seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils. We defined last week seducing spirits as misleading, deceptive, corrupter, and imposter spirits. So that means they present themselves as a true thing, but they are imposters. Remember 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen in New Living Translation says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we see these seducing, misleading, deceptive, corrupter, and imposter spirits. The Amplified Classic Edition calls them deluding and seducing spirits. Now, before I explain more th the latter part of verse 1, I want to take you to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Getting into a little bit of new territory so we can lay the foundation of where we're going today. Daniel chapter 10. So we have this time we see Daniel had been praying and fasting and praying, and fasting, and praying, and fasting for 21 days. This angelic being appears to him. He begins to fall under the power of God. And this angelic being touches him and sets him back up again. And you see in verse 11, he said, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto you, and stand upright. For unto you am I now sent, and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said unto me, Fear not, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you did set your heart to understand and to chase yourself before your God, your words were heard. So, so Daniel, you know, a lot of us get, so, well, did God even hear me? They told Daniel, the first day you said something, God heard you. And I am come for your words. Why did that angelic being make this great trip to where he was? Because Daniel prayed something. Because Daniel said something. And his angel says, I was sent because you prayed something. I was sent because you said something. Although we've talked a lot about demons today and we'll get some more stuff, their activity. You have to remember, you have at least one angel assigned to you. And as you need it, more angelic assistance will be released to you. So don't be afraid of demons. There is a fight, but you have angels fighting for you. God has assigned angels to assist you. God has assigned angels to assist and protect your children. So believe in the protective power of God and the angels he's assigned to you. And so it says here, but the, verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, resisted me, 21 days. Now he's not talking about a human prince. 
There's no way a human could fight off an angel in battle. So what happened? What is he talking about? The demonic prince that was over the kingdom of Persia. Persia is in the area of modern-day Iran. The demonic prince in the unseen world, the rule of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places, we talk about in Ephesians 6, in the unseen world, was resisting this angelic being from being able to make it to Daniel. And so they fought for 21 days. Sometimes you're wondering, why is my answer to prayer taking so long? Why does it seem like everything's taking so long? You may not see it, but there's resistance in the spirit world. But you know something about Daniel's character? He didn't give up just because it took a long time. He kept praying. He kept seeking the face of God. He kept fasting. He kept standing in his place of prayer. And what happened because Daniel didn't, really, didn't back away from his place of prayer? But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So what happened? Angelic reinforcements were sent. And so the angel, the angelic being, begins to give the message. Skip down to verse 19. And said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto you. Be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. He said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, knowest now wherefore I am coming to you? Now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. But I will show you that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holds with me in these things but Michael, your prince. So you have this angelic chief, Michael, and you have this angelic being here who are fighting in the heavenlies. But notice, reinforcements were released as Daniel took his place of prayer and refused to back down. So why am I taking time to explain how the spirit world works in just a little bit? These beings, angelic and demonic, have personalities. And when you look at how demonic beings operate, they seek to impress their personality over the region or territory or city or state or district they oversee. And so that's why if you ever travel to different places, even around this nation or other places around the world, you'll sense different things and you'll see different things operate in the atmosphere of an area because that principality of power or ruler of darkness is seeking to impress his personality, what he specializes in, in that area. And without taking time to go even further because there's so many ways we can break it down, let's go back to 1 Timothy 4. First Timothy 4. The enemy seeks to impress his personality over the region that he oversees. So you have to understand the demonic kingdom is highly organized and it has a battle plan. It has a strategy. And whatever spirit oversees a different area as assigned by the enemy, it seeks to impress its personality over the region, the area, the continent it oversees. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 again. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, paying attention to, giving heed, learning from seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Doctrines of devils or teachings and instructions of devils. Now, most people, I can't say all people, most people wouldn't sign up for a seminar to hear a message taught by a devil or taught by a demon. And so what happens is Satan 
and the spirits under him seek to work their instructions through different means for people to hear and learn. We noticed, we saw how Satan did it with Jesus, how he twisted the truth. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, and we examined some of the things that were preached in the Americas, before the American Revolution and afterward, that were twisting Christianity and twisting the Word of God to make it look like God endorsed the Atlantic slave trade. We looked at how they gave out the slave Bible, which was not the entire Bible, anywhere close to it. It was only portions of 14 books taking the truth of the Word of God, twisting it, removing parts of the Word of God so they can enslave and keep people down. What was that? A doctrine of a demon. Now, last week, as I was preaching and covering different things, you know, a phrase came out of my heart that I hadn't planned or saying it wasn't in my notes. And I thought about it after, you know, I preached the message and began to think about it over last week. And the phrase was race-based deception. Race-based deception. And we looked at how different individuals, we said not all individuals, but there's some within different movements who have race-based deception, that the deception that they believed is based off of the color of their skin or their racial background. The deception is rooted in that fact. It doesn't matter their color, doesn't matter their background, it's still race-based deception. And as I began to think about it, I began to examine race-based deception and the history of this nation and beforehand. Because one of the things I truly believe, and we can see it as we go through history in just a moment, that one of the things the ruler of darkness over this area of the world has seek to impress on this continent, on this nation, on the nations around us in this area was race-based deception. It was a doctrine he sought to teach from the very beginning. You can go even into the earlier civilizations and go all the way back there, but I want to start in the 1400s. And so I took time. I'm not going to cover everything that I researched and looked up. You know, I was looking at documents and writings and letters from the 1400s up till today to prove how this doctrine of this demon has been presented throughout the centuries and is still at work today in different forms. So go with me. It's going to be a history lesson, but go with me. It's important to where we're going. So from the time of Columbus's arrival in 1492 to today, we have seen versions of race-based deception. Under Columbus and those that followed him, we saw the subjugation, enslavement, and almost annihilation of certain groups of Native Americans or indigenous people. When you look at some of the letters when they were describing the people they met, you see in some of the letters how they said that, oh, it'll be easy to subjugate them. It'll be easy if we can send a small contingent of army to put them underfoot and make them do what we require them to do. And so you have to think, the first time you show up somewhere, the first thought, one of the first thoughts you have is subjugating a people you haven't met yet. What is one of the bases of that? Race-based deception. Because they're not from our civilization. They don't look like us. That means we can subjugate them. And so you see that take place in the 1400s. You see that take place in the 1500s. You see, when you study it out, you'll see some of the first enslaved Africans arrive in the 1500s. Now, it wasn't a permanent institution, and it didn't last because that colony and that place that was founded did not last. 
and the people who were enslaved revolted and escaped. Now, what happened to them after that, you may wonder. No one knows. History doesn't record. Some people wonder if they, you know, if they survived, they may have joined different Native American tribes. There's no history saying what happened, but you saw that happen, that you see this impression of race-based deception going back to hundreds of years before the United States of America was ever founded. You know, there's, much, there's been talk a lot about 1619, 401 years ago. Why is that a big year? And remember, everything I'm covering right now is going to lead to today. So everything we're talking about is important to how, what our nation was founded upon. In 1619, the first democratic assembly of the New World convened. That's important because it led to some of the ways we govern today. But also, that same year, an English privateer brought kidnapped Africans to sell as slaves. This is the first time they were sold in the colony of Virginia. So in 1619, the first Democratic Assembly of the New World convened, and an English privateer brought kidnapped Africans to sell as slaves. They were sold in the colony of Virginia. And this is when people usually mark the beginning of the enslavement of Africans and what began to lead in a greater way to the transatlantic slave trade on these shores. Now, you already had practice on this continent and the islands, the enslavement of indigenous people groups. That was already happening. But this you'll see the effects of the transatlantic slave trade and it kidnapped Africans were brought and sold in the Americas. Now, not too long later in 1620, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. And when they were landing at Plymouth Rock, they formed the first governing document of the New World and the establishment of self-government and the Mayflower Compact. In 1620, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock and formed the first governing document of the New World and the establishment of self-government and the Mayflower Compact. So why is it important? Let me read to you what the Mayflower Compact says, because it is the first governing document established here and it still affects our world today. It says, in the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancements of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, due by these present solemn solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. It witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the year of, our, of the reign of our sovereign Lord King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, 1620. So this is the first governing document in the new world, establishing self-government, which even led to how we operate as a nation today. But within the Mayflower Compact is the line that we're establishing this 
for the advancement of the Christian faith. Now, remember, there are multiple groups that come to the new world. And a lot of times in history, we just combine the groups and say, well, they all came together. No, that's not what happened. There are several different groups, several different religious groups, several different empires, several different indigenous people groups, several different things that are going on. And this group called the Pilgrims, who we think about in Thanksgiving, arrived in 1620. Now we know the first Thanksgiving is after they had a very harsh, rough winter where many of the pilgrims died, and the next year they had a bountiful harvest, and we know the story how the local Native American tribe, indigenous people group where they were, were had friendly relations with them, and they celebrated together. Now when we think about it, we picture, you know, you know, the indigenous people group, and then the pilgrims with the black hat and the buckles on the shoe, and that's not how they looked. You know, having a black hat or black clothes was very expensive because there was a lot of dye. So most of them had multicolor, you know, clothes, and only the ones who had most money might have had a black hat. And those buckles probably weren't even worn by the pilgrims. So that's stuff that was added, you know, hundreds of years later. And so there's a lot of controversy right now about, well, the pilgrims, you know, were for slavery and therefore oppressing the Native Americans. Not actually. There are two different groups. The pilgrims arrived. There were people on the Mayflower that were pilgrims those who were pilgrim sympathizers, and those who just came with them to help do, you know, they were hired to do whatever they needed to do. So they didn't have the same beliefs, but they're all on that boat together. So the pilgrims had what we would consider the first Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving proclamations, like they proclaimed one, was not unusual new. It was done throughout Europe. It was done throughout the indigenous people groups. It was done throughout, you go back you know, thousands of years, people even ancient times had a good harvest. They celebrate and they have a day of ceremony, a day of Thanksgiving, whatever. And so, but what we know here as the first Thanksgiving took place and there's a result of the pilgrims. Now this Mayflower Compact we just read remained active until 1691 when the Plymouth Colony became part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a colony of the Puritans. So once again, it's important to note that the pilgrims were against slavery and were the ones who celebrated the first Thanksgiving. 10 years and 11 years later, the Puritans arrived in the 1630s. So we talked about the pilgrims. Now we're talking about the Puritans. They were not against slavery. They weren't. They had a view of they did want to advance the Christian faith as well as many other things. They especially wanted to advance a, what they call a purified version of what was of the Church of England. You know, they were against the teaching of Catholicism and the Church of England broke off from Catholicism and they believed they needed a more purified version of the Church of England. And so they were coming from religious, per, to flee re, religious persecution from England and the pilgrims came for similar reasons, but they had different sets of belief. You know, I don't have time to go into it today, how the Puritans were pursuing domination and what they did. They had the financial connections, they had the political connections, and other things. But they were not against slavery. And so you have multiple groups in what we call the New World who are in these areas. Some are at peace with the indigenous people groups. Some are not. Some believe in slavery. Some do not. Some are participating in slave trade and some do not. It's not a nation. These are different settlements in different colonies or in different parts of one colony. And so as we go forward in the 1600s, enslaved Africans were still viewed as people. Although they were kidnapped, 
and denied several basic human rights, they were still viewed by a lot of people as people. But over time, their rights and more were further stripped away. Over time, their rights and more were further stripped away. You see examples of this in the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705. You see examples of this in the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705. And so a lot of us know history after that. We know the American Revolution. We know how people, it, you have, we have this great declaration that all men are created equal, yet we still believe in enslaving others and treating them like they're not human. So you have, when he studied out the American Revolution and the forming of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and all these different things that happened over a series of decades, and you study out the very beginning of this nation, and you look at people's different belief systems, what they believed, and how it was a lot of compromise, how there are people who didn't believe in it, but they compromised with those who did to form this union. But you still have, and we looked at some of the sermons a couple weeks ago and what was taught, people who do not believe the truth. They still adhere to some form of race-based deception. You even, as you study out, you have some abolitionists who knew from the truth of the word of God that it is wrong to enslave others. It's wrong to treat other people as property. And so you had different beliefs among them. Some of them did not believe that Africans were of the same quality as Europeans. They didn't. They believed they could be inferior, but they believed they could not, they should not be slaves. So they didn't have complete truth. They still had some race-based deception operating in their thinking, but they knew enough to oppose slavery. Then you had abolitionists. You read their writings. Well, we're not sure. We're not sure if there is. Then you had those who could believe completely in the equality of the races and pushed for it. So you had different levels and different groups, how people thought and how people operated. So we know the American Revolution. And then no, years, decades later, we have the Civil War. We have the Emancipation Proclamation. And we know last month we celebrate, well, now a little bit longer than a month, well, we celebrated Juneteenth. And we know when slavery officially ended in the United States of America in that form. Because afterwards, you see in the late 1800s, going into the 1900s, how the South has lost its free labor. And so it's economically depressed. And so you have something that happened in the Jim Crow laws or the black codes and the opening of prisons like Parchman Prison. And I'll read you this article from PBS concerning it. Located about 100 miles south of Memphis in the Mississippi River Delta, the birthplace of the Blues, Mississippi State Prison in parts of Mississippi has become a much, as much a historical landmark as it is a penitentiary. It is about 30 miles from where Emmett Till was murdered in 1955 and surrounded by uninhabitable swampland. Parchment's stored history is the basis for the prison farms featured in the movies Cool Hand Luke, O Brother Where Out Thou. It's referred to as Destination Doom in William Falker's novel, The Mansion, and is now, it is now a haunted setting and Jesmyn Ward's National Book Award winning 2017 novel, Sing, Unburied Sing. And as they describe more about that book, and in this book she writes about the two generations of prisoners at Parchman. When you skip down a little more in this article, I'll let you guys read if you choose to research this yourself. 
The history of Mississippi State Penitentiary, Penitentiary is a history of failed reforms. Its creation in 1901 was born of a statewide shame and frustration at the contemporary system of convict leasing. Now, what is convict leasing? In the, re in the Reconstructionist South, states' coffers were empty, prisons destroyed, and their former free labor supply was emancipated. Many southern states, including Mississippi, began arresting almost exclusively young black men on charges ranging from laundering to larceny to murder. Some were legitimate, but many more were fabricated or embellished. The state began leasing the prisoners to wealthy contractors who would further sublease them to companies. The convicts under convict leasing would do the kind of work that free labor would not want to do. In other words, the work a white worker may not want to do. Under convict leasing, the inmates were essentially slaves again. They worked long hours for no pay, were poorly fed, and slept in tents at work sites doing dangerous jobs like dynamiting tunnels for railroad companies and clearing malaria-filled swamps for construction. Convicts, sometimes including children under the age of 10, were whipped and beaten, underfed, and rarely given medical treatment. It says here that between 9 and 16% of convicts died yearly in the 1880s. Skip down a little bit more, it's a long article. Convicts worked six days a week, lived in barracks with no separation of classification by crime, and were often subject to punishment by a whip referred to as Black Annie. Convicts called gunmen picked cotton under the watch of the most violent offenders who were given guns and called trusty shooters or trustees. The farm was profitable. In 1980, the prison had a net revenue of $825,000, or about $800 per inmate. Skip down a little bit more. Parchment Farm stayed this way, more or less, for the next 70 years. Cotton picking became mechanized, and the state instituted some small reforms. And you see, you can go in more and more about how although slavery was outlawed, people were sent here and made to work for the profit of the state. Now, as you study it out, and I won't take any more time to go through it, that you see some of the early foundations of the modern prison system were set to replace the finances lost because slaves have been emancipated. So when you look at it, there are some who are arrested who did commit crimes. And there were others who were arrested who didn't. And then there were new laws written making things illegal that weren't illegal. And they were selectively enforced so that they have this prison or slave labor to cause the state to make the money that it lost because of emancipation. That began in 1901. That prison operated in that way for about 70 years into the 1970s, the 1970s, where more a judge ruled against the reforms. That prison is still in operation today under horrible conditions, but not the same things you see here in this article. So you have things like that, and Jim Crow laws, and black codes, and things that weren't illegal before that were changed to become illegal, so that now the nation views black people 
as criminals because the law was changed over 100 years ago and the system was implemented. What does all of this do? Race-based deception combined with hate, combined with greed, but still at the root is race-based deception that yields to strife. And we know where there's envy and strife, there is every evil work. You can also, outside of legal things and government things, you can look at music and media's portrayal of black people as hypersexualized beings and criminals, race-based deception. We can look at how indigenous people groups are presented as savages, race-based deception. And so when you look at this, even today, there are thoughts people have about other races that are not true. There are certain stereotypes that are presented that are based in race-based deception. And it's not just a black and white thing. You have to think yourself, do you have certain thoughts to other race groups and why do you have that? Are you operating or thinking or have a mentality of race-based deception? You see it today in different forms. People describing people from the Middle East as terrorists. You see it happen all this year in an intensified of hate crimes against those of Asian descent, Asian Americans, saying that they're the ones who brought the virus, they're the ones who brought the disease, that they're, they did it. You see you had increased hate crimes of that off of the foolish belief that they caused the virus. Race-based deception. And you see it among many different people groups. You saw it for hundreds of years as this ruler of darkness seeks to put his personality and the way he thinks on entire groups of people. Now in addressing this, something I probably could address in a four week extension of the series, but summing it up, the answer is spiritual and natural. The answer is spiritual and natural. Sadly, when it comes to race things or things of racial strife, people say, oh, it's a spiritual issue and you can't change hearts with laws. No, you can't change hearts with laws, but when laws were written to enforce this deception, then these laws have to be repealed and new laws have to be written. The issue is spiritual and natural, not just spiritual. We can't just say, oh, it's a spiritual issue, and so we'll pretend to pray and not push for reform. No, that does not cut it. The answer is spiritual and natural. Laws must be changed, policies must be enacted, prisons must be reformed, political leaders have to be held accountable, and we must pray. We don't forget prayer. Prayer is important. And we must resist by doing our part. So you make a decision that you're not going to allow race-based deceptions to exist in your sphere of influence. That you're not going to allow racism and bigotry to exist in your sphere of influence. I'm not talking about, oh, you see someone at the grocery store, oh, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in your house, how you think and talk about other races. How you think about other people that don't look like you, who aren't from your background. How you think other people are because of how they look. You challenge it in yourself first. You challenge it in your thinking first. Then you challenge it in your family. You challenge it with that racist uncle, that racist aunt. You don't let that be said in press and say, no, I don't agree with that. And then you take a stand in other places as well. 
We're all called to be in different places, but as we take this stand, this thinking has to die. You know, one of the things I saw this quote from F.F. Bosworth, and I want to read it to you as we begin to wrap this up. He was talking about the area where he was in, referring to what we read in Daniel. We have to get victories over the prince of Ottawa, for just as there was a prince of Persia, there's undoubtedly a prince of Ottawa. There's a great difference in the spiritual atmosphere in various localities. Why? Because there is a spiritual conflict in progress, and the victory is won in some places, while it's not in the others, on the part of God's people. So in summary, the victory that's experienced and the change that's experienced in this world is based on what the church does. And the church, we're not fighting to get the victory. We're supposed to be fighting from the place of victory and enforcing our victory. But when the church participates in race-based deception, when the church participates and preaches the doctrines of the devil, things will not change. And one of the things you see, one of the most powerful things in the history of this continent has been the pulpit, has been what is preached. The preaching fueled the abolitionist movement and preaching fueled the Confederacy. And so you have to make sure that you're not partnering with race-based deception. Are you listening to the Spirit of God or are you listening to the Spirit of the Confederacy? You have to make sure that you're standing for truth and you understand what the Word of God really says. Because too sadly that in people who believe God and were right in so many other areas, they had this issue wrong. And up to the 90s, you had trusted study Bibles that included the 30 different reasons why the races should be segregated up till the 90s. And the thing is, just because those things are not politically correct, just because those things have changed, doesn't mean thinking has changed because this has been taught in schools and preached in churches and it must be challenged. We're going for reconciliation, for justice and righteousness. But we must take a stand in our own house we must take a stand in our own lives, and we must make a decision. This won't cut it anymore. Yes, I pray. Yes, I preach. Yes, I protest. And yes, I vote. With all these things in mind, it's time for the church to lead the way because the church is the only one qualified to deal with it. The church was instrumental in building this system, and the church has to be instrumental in changing the system. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be the light of the world. So it's time for us to shine in the darkness. Not participate in the darkness. Not cooperate in the darkness. Not act like the darkness. Not act like the kingdom of the enemy. But act as the kingdom of light. Causing things to change. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Strongholds are castles and fortresses. Now, we might think, oh, there's a castle or fortress over city. That's not what this verse is talking about. It explains itself in verse 5, casting down imaginations or reasonings and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring it into captivity, leading into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So race-based deception is a thought that's disobedient to Christ, disobedient to the gospel. You have to make a decision that's not going to exist in my mind. And the thing is, we think about race-based deception 
just as a way of thinking, okay, what people do against others. But sadly, there are many people, many different racial groups that have race-based deception about themselves. That because of the color of their skin, because of how light they are, because of how dark they are, because of how they look, they hate themselves and they see themselves as inferior because they were taught by somebody else who was backed by a demonic doctrine that they are inferior, that this is wrong with them, that because your nose looks this way, it's wrong, because you're this dark, because you're this light, you can't succeed in life. And they've been called all different types of names, all these types of racial slurs, no matter what color you are, no matter what race you are, as I'm talking about this, you have it in your background, something that was said to you, that will say why you cannot go forward or why you're going to be in fear in your life because of whatever reason based off of how you look. That is a doctrine of a demon that are words from the kingdom of hell. It is a curse, and I break it off of you right now. You are not what they said. You are not inferior to any man. You are not inferior to any woman. You are not inferior. You are in Christ. You are who he says you are. In Christ, you are enough. In Christ's sufficiency, you are sufficient. So stop listening to that doctrine of the devil. Stop listening to the deception. You are not inferior. No matter what you look like, no matter your background, no matter where you come from, no matter who your parents are, no matter the color of your skin, how dark you are or how light you are, you are not inferior. Christ has paid the price for you. He loves you and you matter. You matter. You, yes you, you matter. Don't listen to the doctrine of the demon that tells you that you don't, that you're inferior. Take that thought captive. If we want to see the victory in this area, we have to take the thoughts in our heads concerning about us being inferior or us being superior to someone else because of our race. We have to take that thought captive. We have to take thoughts captive that make us think down on others just because of how they look, because of the color of their skin. We have to make a decision not to participate with this demonic power any longer in what it's taught. Let's go to Luke 18 really quick. Luke 18. Verse 1. And Jesus spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray, not faint. So the purpose of this parable is to keep on praying saying that there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, is getting on my nerves, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge say. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto them, though he bear long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. And nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. So notice Jesus uses the parable of an unjust judge. Notice how often he says the unjust judge. God is not an unjust judge. He is just. He is a God of justice. So this woman got her way concerning her adversary because she was persistent. She was persistent in her request. And the unjust judges relented, fine, I'll do what you want. I'll avenge you of your adversary. How much more will God want to intervene for you? Your heavenly father want to intervene for you if you stand in the place of persistent prayer. 
The way you bring change on this earth is by praying and by putting feet to your prayers, as Frederick Douglass would say. So yes, we pray, but then we also act on what we believe, because faith without works is dead. But there must be serious prayer concerning this issue made in this nation, concerning things that could happen and may happen this year, depending on how the church prays. We must pray concerning reconciliation. We must pray and take our stand. We must withstand and resist Satan's strategy of race-based deception and make a decision we're not giving in. And this nation's going to be what we say it's going to be. You might say, oh, pastor, but you know it's the end times. And? Well, doesn't it say in the end time darkness will get worse? Yes, but you are the light. Darkness does not get to set what goes on in this world. The people of the glorious light of the gospel set. So if you don't like how dark the world is getting, turn up your light. If you don't like how bad things are getting, manifest the goodness of God. Yes, there will be people who always yield to the kingdom of darkness, people who always yield to hell's agenda, but you can be a decision that I yield to heaven's agenda, I yield to the kingdom of heaven, I'm a child of the light, I'm covered in the armor of the light, so I'm going to resist the devil, and he is going to flee, and I'm going to cause change on this earth as long as I'm here because I'm the salt of the world, I am the light of the world, and I'm going to make a difference, not just in my family's life, but in those around me. You make that decision to stand. You take every thought captive, and you pray. You know, one of the things we learn from Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go there real quickly. Running out of time. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. It's the end of a prayer that I encourage you to pray for yourself and for your church family, for me every single day. He says, which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sent him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which has come, has put all things under his feet and gave him to the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Christ Jesus is our head. We are the body of Christ. And he says he put all things under the feet. We are the body. He's put all things under feet us. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. He makes it even clearer in chapter 2, verse 6, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can rule and reign concerning things in your sphere of influence to the point that as you yield to the grace of God and you do things the way God wants you to, when you say stuff, things have to change because of your seat of authority. But too many of us get fleshly. Too many of us begin to partner with the kingdom of darkness. Too many of us let go of the word that we receive, and we begin to act like the world, and we get up from our seat. Satan will love for you to get up from your seat, to get up of your place from ruling. But you need to catch a Rosa Parks anointing, sit your butt down, rule and reign, decree and declare, walk in the light, walk in the fruit of the Spirit, walk under the unction of the Holy Ghost, cause things to change. Jesus coming back for a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, not a church that's running from the devil and participating with the devil and acting like the devil. So yes, your faith may be under fire, but it's time for you to stand up because it's our faith that overcomes this world and the world systems. Even if the world systems are based on race-based deception, what you believe can overcome. What you believe can conquer. What you say wins the day. Stop giving in to doubt. Stop giving in to fear. Stop giving in to the kingdom of God. Just rise up, church. This is the time for you to resist. Join the resistance of the kingdom of God.
Don't resist in the ways of the world. You get before God and you find out what you're supposed to do and march forward. Don't leave your seat of authority. Don't leave your place of prayer. Put feet to your prayer. Take every thought captive. Do not participate with race-based deception. Don't do it. Let's make a change. There's so much more for us to do. And we're the ones God has called to do it. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share this word with your people. There's so much more that can be uncovered in this. So I ask that you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive even more from you about this this week. Let this word continually speak to us and produce in our lives 30, 60, and 100 fold. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word so we can be blessed in our doing. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching today. We hope today's message was a blessing to you that it empowered you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Hey, if you want to be a part of what God's doing here at Faith, you know, our vision statement is to ignite awakening that impacts Georgia and influences the world through the power of the love of Jesus. And we'd love for you to be a part. You can find out our different experience times and our different locations by going to FCCGA.com. If you want to give, you can text FCCGA to 73256. You can also go to FCCGA.com to give online and be a part of what God's doing here. We'd love to see you anytime you're in our area. We believe God has something good just for you. And anytime you come to our faith experience, we believe you will experience God and his plan for your life. So thank you for tuning in today. We'll see you next time.